Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Parliament is returning with another Liberal government, which means it won't be long until we have another bill going after online speech. Let's talk about it. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Every Friday we do things a bit differently, take an issue and do a deep dive into it, talk about why it matters with some of the best and brightest we can muster up to do it. Today I want to talk about Bill C-36. C-36 is the bill the Liberal government introduced just in the day before the House of Commons rose for the last time for the summer. It's a bill that would allow the government to prosecute people through the Canadian Human Rights Act for so-called hate speech. They would do it in a way that goes after only speech that causes detestation or vilification. They say, no, 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 it's not about speech that just offends or humiliates. It's not about jokes. It's not about imposing censorship. It's only the worst, only the worst speech. Well, that speech is already illegal. The criminal code is already abundantly clear in Canada that speech that rises to that critical level of threatening or inciting violence, inciting genocide, that's what hate speech is. Anything else necessarily lowers that bar, which means it expands the ability of government to go after online speech, to go after speech in general. This is why Bill C-36, which brings back Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act, is such a dangerous piece of legislation, and one that got virtually no media coverage outside of a couple of individual people that seemed to be like me paying attention to it because they remembered when it was around the first time, repealed by the Conservatives in 2013. So where we look at this battle unfolding now is that the Liberals have won re-election. They are likely to bring this back. It might have a different number than C-36, but we know it's coming back. And that's why it's important to talk about the state of free speech in Canada and also what it's likely to be when this bill goes forward. I'm joined by a fantastic panel of experts to do exactly that. Jonathan Kay is a Canadian editor of Quillette and joins me, as does Sarah Miller, a lawyer with JSS Barristers in Calgary, and Lisa Bildy, a lawyer with Libertas Law in my neck of the woods in London, Ontario. Uh, John, Sarah, Lisa, thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. So I want to start with you on, on this, Jonathan, to set the stage here, because I remember when almost a decade ago, the Conservatives were pushing for the repeal of, of Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. There were some notable examples of, of these human rights laws in, in, in action. You had Ezra Levant and Mark Stein and some other more prominent cases. But there did seem to be among a lot of members of the Canadian media this understanding that this section of the law that allows the government to go after speech isn't good. And, and this tended to cross liberal conservative lines uh, ideologically and, and also in a partisan way. When the Liberals brought back Section 13 effectively, or tried to before the House rose for the summer, I didn't hear a lot of that outrage. And, and I could be just in my own little echo chamber here, but I'm wondering if you could reflect on, on whether a lot of those principled pro-free speech journalists have kind of moved on. So I, it's, it's hard to to compare the climate now with, I think it was 2013 when the Conservatives got rid of yeah. that section. Uh, because before that, 
so much of the discussion centered on two people. It centered on Ezra Levant and it centered on, centered on Mark Stein because uh, Mark Stein, it was a, I think it was a book excerpt that appeared in McLean's, which was then run by Ken White, and it was denounced by some progressives as, as Islamophobic. Um, but the debate, I mean, I think everybody listening probably knows who Ezra is, and in his Ezra way, he, he turned it into something that was very focused on, I mean, I, I happen to agree with him, and I, uh, you know, I have disagreements with Ezra and, and with Mark Stein about certain aspects of what, what they've written, but uh, they were right. And they, the, the campaign against that section, uh, I think to some extent, maybe, maybe not as much as I think you suggest, but to some extent there were principled liberals who agreed. The, the big problem with that section, to my mind, was you could have literally just random people come and... Um, it's an administrative action, but uh, there was, well, there was one guy in, in Ottawa, I think he like accounted for something like 40% of all the cases under Section 13. So it, it wasn't just the substantive aspect of the specter of censorship. It was also all of the kind of um, uh, fairly loose and undisciplined uh, procedural aspects, which you can expect under what was essentially an administrative provision. You know, you weren't protected by the safeguards you'd get in a criminal court proceeding. Let me turn to you on, on this, Sarah, because I know there were a number of issues, as John indicates there, in the first go-around of Section 13. And you can tell in the wording of C-36, which, again, died with the election, but we know is likely to be reintroduced, at least identically or, or in some similar form. You can tell they, they've tried to prevent some of those criticisms. They have one clause that says, well, you know, mere offense isn't enough. And they're, they're trying to say this is only for really extreme things. Is that enough to fix it, or, or is it really flawed in a more fundamental way? Uh, I don't think that it's quite enough to fix it. Um, you know, they've obviously identified that that's an issue that they want to address and, and answer, but um, there's, there's a number of, of more core issues on, on how that plays out that have not been addressed, and they leave it still, I mean, at least in, in what they've proposed way too broad. And let me turn to you next, Lisa, because we know that uh, there have been a number of areas here where we, we've seen the government try to sort of expand the sphere of how it can regulate online speech and online content. We, we had also the, the bill that would extend uh, the internet uh, regulations to online publishers, and, and we still don't entirely know the definition of that, and that's through, through Bill C-10, which I, I think ended up getting a lot more attention than Bill C-36 did, and, and we can perhaps talk about the reasons why. But, but fundamentally, are, are we talking about something here that is flawed because of what it's trying to do or just flawed because of how it's trying to do it? Well, both. I mean, you know, I think anytime you start trying to uh, curtail speech and import this sort of subjectivity that is necessary to do that, uh, you're, you know, you're asking for you're asking for trouble. And so a couple of things that jump off the, the page for me, one is that either there's actually in addition to reconstituting Section 13 of the uh, uh, Canadian Human Rights Act, you're also um, there's also amendments to the criminal code, and one of them in particular allows you to now go and get a um, basically a, a peace bond or a, a you know something that would protect you from a future crime that might be committed under this section. Now, it's one thing to go and get that kind of a restraining order if you're say 
you know, a battered wife and you're expecting, you're anticipating that a spouse might, um, might harm you and, you know, you, you want to get uh, something that, that protects you from that. But this is now uh, importing this into the idea of a, of a speech crime, effectively. So, so basically you, you can go to the, uh, go, go to the courthouse and uh, get a private information laid or, or seek out a, a peace bond, basically, for, for what is essentially a thought crime. Somebody might say something that, that rises to the level of a hate crime or publish something online. Now I can see perhaps in the context where, you know, you've, and I, and I think one of the things with this act is that it tried to bring in or, or show that it was um, necessary because of certain very egregious things. Like for example, you, you've got photographs um, taken of somebody in a compromising position and there's a relationship breakup and that person is going to go and publish them on the internet or something like that. You know, you might want to uh, anticipate that that's going to happen and get a, an order against it. But it lumps in, of course, child pornography and other things that nobody would have any objection to are all stated objectively in, that, in, that, um, in the act. But then it imports the concept of harm into it. And, and so I'm a little concerned that people might have a, a, a vendetta against somebody and go and try and get a peace bond against them um, for, for a hate crime that they have not yet committed. We're getting into minority report territory with that one. Yeah, I mean, even with Section 13, when it was around, the, the term that was often used to describe it was thought crime. And, and what you've just described there, Lisa, is, is in a literal sense, because we're talking about the criminal code, not just the, uh, the Human Rights Act. This idea of online harms is a relatively new term. And, and I do think you, you raise an important point, Lisa, that I, I want to get your take on, Jonathan, which is the expansion of it. We're, we're taking things that are very harmful and expanding it to include hate speech. And, and hate speech is in and of itself a, a loaded term that lacks often a, a very clear definition. But do you find that this idea of harm is getting far too broad when we start talking about all these ways to counter harm? Yeah, although it's sort of a, an in, inevitable dilution of language uh, as you get more people who are who are writing laws and who are who are acting as judges and and running the country who who have grown up in the social media era, and I, I can attest that as a parent, uh, I've seen situations where you have you have kids and something bad happens online, and it's kind of even though it's it's in the virtual world, it's sort of like is the most important event in their life, and even as adults, I mean, and there are probably people watching this who. Uh, you know, something happened on Twitter or Facebook and it sort of blew up their life for a week or a month or more. Like, it, it happens. Um, what, I, what I do object to is if you look, actually, I think I was just reading a news report about these uh, somewhat vague measures that are intended to help uh, female journalists uh, protect them from abuse and harassment in Canada. Um, there is a somewhat promiscuous use of the term violence to describe what is essentially harassment and, and you know harassment can be a terrible thing uh, but it, it is now kind of common and you sent I think I was just reading a flat-out news article that just described um, people going after someone on Twitter as a form of violence the problem with that sort of thing is um, you know I think most of us appreciate the fact that if somebody comes and smashes the windows on your on your house or tries to you know burn down your garage or something that's different from them harassing you on Twitter um, unfortunately, that that kind of language has become all intermingled, and I, I don't think that's helpful. 
Yeah, and just to, to go into the social media realm a bit further there, John, we have Twitter, which has a, a policy, which as a private company, I maintain it's allowed to have, that says using the wrong pronouns is something that falls under its hate speech policy or dead naming. If you call a transgender person by their birth name, that is something that Twitter says is, is hate. And again, Twitter is, is not the Canadian Human Rights Quit, uh, Commission. Twitter is not Canadian law. But it, it shows that we do have varying degrees of, of breadth. And a lot of the activists that are pushing for more strict uh, measures against online harms, I don't think would have an issue extending it to misgendering someone. Yeah, although the, <laughs> the, the interaction with social media is kind of interesting for a few reasons. Uh, one reason is, is I think it's the last few years in particular, it's been very interesting to watch progressives, um, you know, make full-throated defenses of the prerogatives of Silicon Valley billionaires to control what all of us can, can say and, and, and read and watch. Um, you know, these are some of the wealthiest plutocrats in the world. And in, in, some, case, in some context, not all, um, their, <laughs> their biggest cheerleaders are um, people who um, not so long ago would have seen themselves as Marxists or socialists or whatnot. The other weird thing um, is that if you look at, at, at Bill C-36, uh, I think it's C-36, um, it's written in this way that sort of presumes the government of Canada can impose these new strictures on social media companies. Uh, and as we've seen, you know, with Facebook in Australia and, and other examples is that, uh, you know, a lot of the time when federal governments, when governments tell Twitter or Facebook what to do, uh, often <laughs> they say, thanks for the suggestion, we're not doing that. Um, and, uh, and and you also, by the way, see, the, see this with this, this, these manifestos that have been going around to protect female journalists in Canada. Uh, there's this sort of like very vaguely defined call to get social media companies um, to do stuff. Putting aside the substance of whether this is a good idea, it often seems like very pie in the sky. The idea, you know, Canada is a relatively small country uh, population wise uh, and in terms of our user base on social media that even somebody like Justin Trudeau is going to say, well, we passed this law and you have to do this, that and the other to operate in Canada. It seems likely that the result of that would just be Facebook ignoring us. Yeah, I mean, the intersection of this attitude and, and these laws with social media is a key one. Uh, Sarah, I know when Section 13 was around the first time, what happened was people would, if they were unlucky enough to be targeted by this, get hauled into some tribunal, and, and the question was really about the remedy of it. Now, we've heard uh, social media companies and governments get into dialogues about what the best way to work together to get rid of hate speech is. We know the Canadian government has, has tried to put in restrictions that would uh, require takedown of content within 24 hours of, of so-called uh, offending content, not based on social media companies' definitions of offending content, but based on things that government prohibits. And the challenge with that is that you don't really have that ability to appeal and go through an open and transparent tribunal if uh, Facebook or Twitter is interpreting some government hate speech definition and just zapping your content. Yeah, absolutely. So the, I, I mean, the takedown provision really does limit your ability to express yourself. Um, but also it kind of gives you this, like, takes away your, your procedural fairness rights, right? So instead, as what you say, you know, going to the tribunal and having a full hearing as to whether or not what you've done is, is hateful. Um, you've got somebody stepping in and, and deplatforming you to, to stay compliant with the law or, or to, 
uh, be risk adverse. Yeah, I mean, it, it all it really does look like the state is is trying to deputize these companies. And, and obviously, I, I understand in practice, if we are talking about child pornography, uh, child pornography, we're talking about some of the materials that are, are banned because of uh, terrorism provisions and, and terror propaganda and all of these things. And I guess the, the question I have, Sarah, is, is how do we separate those two things? How do we say, okay, the, these things that are, are documented harms in society are in this one category, and speech is entirely different. We, we don't want to be deleting people's speech on them under these uh, very vaguely defined provisions. Well, uh, I mean, what we have currently is criminal law to address terrorism, child pornography, right? And, and so what they're doing is almost duplicating the, the provisions to say, okay, it's not only criminal, but here's a, here's a regulatory remedy. And maybe that makes sense in the sense that criminal law is, has a high burden of proof and they want an alternative remedy, but it, it captures all these other harms to society and, and democratic rights and freedoms that, that we want to be have protected. And regulatory uh, provisions, regulatory law doesn't always capture the same charter protection that you would get in, in a criminal law setting. Um, so it, it really, creates a lot of risk for, for individuals um, that they're going to be captured in this regulatory provision um, that wouldn't have triggered criminal, criminal law uh, response. Sarah mentioned the charter. I, I know you've been at the forefront, as has Sarah, Lisa, of a lot of charter-based litigation in the last year and a half and, and even beyond. Most people would uh, look at this and say, well, you know, the charter guarantees freedom of expression. So our, our free speech is protected. This bill is going to be fine. You're probably not all that optimistic on that, are you? Well, not really, no, because I put all of this into the broader political and cultural context, and it gives me great cause for concern. You know, it's interesting, and I'm going to circle back to the Charter in a second, but, you know, <laughs> you look at, um, there's a group that's called the Canadian Anti-Hate. I'm going to see if I can find their, oh, yeah, yeah, anti-hate.ca. Okay, so they had a little statement they put out uh, back in the summer about this bill, Bill C-36, and I thought it was interesting how they characterized this bill. They said, hate speech is an attack on free speech. Removing hate will make it more possible for women, BIPOC, uh, 2SLGBTQ plus persons, etc. to exercise their charter rights to expression and fully participate in society. Well, of course, I mean, if you are paying attention to the culture war, this is taken right out of Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance essay, in a sense. In other words, we have to, in order to be free, in order to be able to have uh, this, this idealistic, liberated utopia that, uh, that he wrote about back in the 1960s, in which is, has kind of become uh, the world in which we live, as it turns out, um, uh, through you know, the gradual uh, creep, creep and then steamrolling through much, many of our institutions. Um, what, what it means is we have to clamp down on any speech in order to be free, any speech that doesn't align with our views. And so the bottom line is left-wing speech, no matter how extreme, is okay. It will get the pass. And right-wing speech, or anything to the right of, you know, hard left, which is pretty much everybody else, um, now their speech is going to be curtailed and controlled because it will be perceived as hate speech 
uh, in the eyes of, of the people who are probably going to be making the decisions on, on what get, gets captured by all of this. And so, you know, you sort of see this extrapolated more broadly into the charter as well, because we now have charter values, which can override the actual stated provisions in the document. So, you know, it, we're just in a, a new constitutional era, I think, where I don't actually have a lot of hope that our constitution will be upheld the way we think it should for the people who are going to find themselves running afoul of this, which is which is basically anybody who's not saying the correct things in the current cultural zeitgeist. Sorry, if I, I have to go soon, but if, if I may just comment on uh, CAHN, I think that's the acronym there, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, which has a very august name, but from what I can tell is basically um, mostly is just one dude with a Twitter account. But also one dude with a Twitter account who I think got more than $200,000 from the federal government uh, to keep up his uh, super sophisticated anti-hate operation going. And uh, if you're one of the few people who isn't blocked on their Twitter account, uh, you can read all about their, their initiatives. And, and it's basically a steady stream of, um, you know, left of center calls for censorship, um, you know, getting rid of speech they don't like. And I think if you want an indication of how broadly uh, their vision of censorship would go. And again, this is, they don't have a broad constituency. It's basically a, a grant recipient operating a Twitter account. Um, they have trumpeted a study um, that claims there are 300 right-wing, I think, white supremacist hate groups in Canada. I personally have contacted them and said, uh, or at least the person who, who performed the study and has said, um, could we have the list of 300 white supremacist hate groups? I'm sure there are 10, maybe there's 20, 30, 40. Um, they wouldn't give me the study. I wrote a National Post column about it. Uh, they were very happy to keep scaring people with the idea that there are 300 of these uh, right-wing hate groups. Uh, and of course, that big scary number uh, is great for getting people around to the idea that we need to censor this and that. Uh, from the best I could tell, the only way you can get to that number 300 is pretty much if every conservative group in the country is lumped in as a white supremacist right-wing hate group. So, you know, once you go down the road of, of censorship, and this applies to conservatives and liberals, too. I'm not a fan of conservative censorship either. Uh, you quickly find out that a lot of the people who are the biggest cheerleaders for it, uh, they don't just want to stop at revenge porn, which everybody agrees is horrible and, and should be censored, um, and child porn, same category. Uh, but they're kind of just happy to censor anything they disagree with. Um, and I think you know, CHN <laughs> is, is a great example, uh, and people should consult that example, they should Google it, uh, though not for the reasons that the CAHN itself would have us believe. I think it's, it's a cautionary tale. Yeah, I know you've got a, another commitment, John. I checked, and I'm not yet blocked, although after uh, this show, perhaps that'll change. Uh, Jonathan Kay, Canadian editor of Quillette, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Lisa. And continuing along uh, in John's absence here, it wasn't intentional. We just had a, a scheduling conflict. Uh, let me turn to you on this, Sarah. We, we were just talking about this one particular group that I would suspect, at the risk of predicting the future, but if the government can go after thought crimes, we can try to predict the future as well, that there will be activist groups that try to weaponize whatever this enforcement regime looks like once uh, the, these are put into place. And, and that, to me, strikes me as a 
big problem, that we could have a, a system where activist groups that have a pretty demonstrated track record of trying to go after people for expressing opinions they don't like have all of a sudden a legal mechanism to, to go after these people and, and start telling the social media companies you've got to delete this because it violates this section of law or uh, going at, right to the commission and saying, you know, we're filing complaints against all of these. And, and that seems to be, and I, again, I could be just overly pessimistic here, but that seems to be an inevitability in something like this. Yeah, I, I mean, what we have is uh, the Constitution that's not going to really take any steps to protect those who aren't part of the majority, right? And so anything that's not going to fall within the majority uh, mindset, the majority narrative, the, the, the parts that we consider politically correct or right or, or like right as incorrect, um, those, those speech topics are all going to be fine. And anything that falls outside of that is going to be, as you say, attacked and and I think aggressively so. I mean, the, the government is essentially giving us a green light for that, right? They're saying, yeah, go use this, use these kind of mechanisms to go and pursue what you interpret as hate crime. Go and file a complaint as a self-represented person at the Canadian Human Rights Commission. Like, these are the things that are, are designed to em empower people who fall within that politically correct camp and and you know left of center camp that are going to lead the narrative and and deplatform anybody who doesn't agree with with their uh, points of view yeah, I remember when the Mark Stein case, just to go back to the example we, we talked about at the beginning happened, the complainants in that case actually shopped it around to different commissions. They went to the Ontario Human Rights Commission and said, yeah, we don't like this excerpt that ran in McLean's and the Canadian Human or the Ontario Human Rights Commission said, yeah, I mean, we, we don't like it. We're, we're with you. That's offensive, but we can't prosecute it. The Canadian Human Rights Commission wouldn't take it up. And then it ultimately was the BC one that said, yeah, sure, let's do this. Uh, you know, the BC Human rights tribunal going after a column written by a Canadian living in New England that was published in a, a Canadian magazine not based in, in British Columbia. And, and I mean, we can talk about the jurisdictional aspects of this, although I would tend to agree with your point a few moments ago, Lisa, that, that all of these are secondary to the cultural thrust that seems to be behind this. And I, I guess let me ask you, is the best way to combat this using legal means or going after that source, going after that political and cultural impetus behind this well i think so but i don't know if that ship has sailed I, I suspect it may have i mean given how for example the conservatives were were absolutely silent on these bills uh in the lead up to the last election uh you know they don't seem terribly concerned about this this is, this is something that should be of concern i don't think that they quite get the cultural moment that we're in i think we're already too late and i'm i'm not i don't really fit perfectly in the conservative uh uh, camp myself, but um, as someone who values free speech and and you know the uh, the marketplace of ideas as being sort of foundational to what our Western civilization is built on, I, I would think that that would be something that should at least attract you know a, a statement or two. And in fact, it sounds like from some of the clips that I've seen, um, uh, you know, along the way from the House, that they're actually in favor of this kind of legislation. You know, they they want to be able to stomp, stomp out hate, however that's defined. Of course, I don't think they realize that they're going to be the primary targets of this kind of legislation because 
anything they say will be viewed as as, as hate. Uh, it's just inevitable. We see it all the time on social media and, and other places. Uh, and it, whenever you've got words that can be manipulated, um, and that's part of the whole game is is the manipulation of language. So when you talk about vilification or detestation or other words of art that are in these in this legislation, you know how is that going to be uh, interpreted and defined? Well, it won't be in a way that uh, provides maximal protection for free expression. So um, yeah, so I I don't. Uh, I don't know that we can turn the ship around very easily at this point. The culture is pretty solid, and I think we see this over the last 18 months dealing with the pandemic and seeing how collectivist uh, our country has become. And, you know, the rally now around um, sentiment that would vilify and detest people who don't uh, choose to have the vaccination is, a, is an example. Yeah, are, are the people who, who engage in that kind of speech going to be um, taken to task? No, I don't think they are. That, that's a very good point. And just to use that language in, in C-36 for a moment, it, it says, uh, as Lisa mentions, uh, detestation and vilification. But it also says that speech that expresses mere dislike or disdain or speech that discredits, humiliates, hurts or offends doesn't meet that threshold of, of being prohibited. So there's a, a spectrum of mere dislike to vilification. The government has drawn the line between humiliates and offends and uh, vilification and detestation. I, I mean, these are terms that all sound well and good. And, and we talked about this earlier. People would look at that and say, oh, okay, great. You know, they're only going after the extreme stuff. They say it right there. But at a certain point, someone has to take a, a word or a phrase or an expression and plot it on that spectrum. And, and Sarah, how does that process unfold in a way that protects free speech? It's, uh, I mean, so often going to be informed by your own philosophical understanding, right? Like um, Lisa made a great point. Uh, if you're anti, if you're pro-vaccination and you you hate those who aren't vaccinated, nobody's going to use these these provisions to pursue a pro-vaccination uh, person, right? And so you really just don't have um, the right mechanisms in place to protect freedom of speech. You don't see it in um, in recent court decisions on freedom, uh, freedom of expression. There's not a really uh, robust desire to protect freedom of expression. Um, it, we, are, we are far more often falling into the suppress uh, fake news, suppress any kind of narrative that doesn't fall within the approved narrative. Um, and anytime that those are explicitly expressed or um, repressed, then what we have is just the government saying section one, this is justifiable, the ends justify the means. And um, I mean, the, the charter doesn't exist to to protect the majority. That's not what it's there for. It's supposed to be protecting the, the fringe expression. And um, I don't think that the appetite is there to do that. Yeah. And, and this is, I think, more of a, a philosophical point than anything else. But I, I think it still bears putting on the record here that you don't need legal protections for popular speech. You, you don't need the protections for the speech that's unlikely to be censored for exactly that reason. So when, when people start trying to draw this line of, well, I support free speech, but... Well, it's the stuff in that butt category, Lisa, that is the most in need of a protection against censorship. 
Right, and there was a time when our Supreme Court of Canada actually uh, believed that too. And I was actually just, I'm going to rattle through some papers here for a half second, because I had a little quote from uh, R.V. Zundel, which is an older case now, but um, uh, if I can find, put my hands on it. Um, yeah, uh, so that in that decision, the Supreme Court of Canada said, the guarantee of freedom of expression serves to protect the right of the minority to express its view, however unpopular it may be. Adapted to this context, it serves to preclude the majority's perception of truth or public interest from smothering the minority's perception. The view of the majority has no need of constitutional protection. It's tolerated in any event. Viewed thus, a law which forbids expression of a minority or false view on pain of criminal prosecution and imprisonment on its face offends the purpose of the guarantee of free expression. Now, um, but I, I, you know, I, I share uh, Sarah's, I mean, I think we, we are all on the same page, uh, uh, concerns about Section 1. It's become really almost sort of a sword against the, um, uh, the, the minority opinions that don't fit or the minority um, lifestyles and so on that, that don't fit with, with our current, uh, I mean, we've been seeing this again through the last 18 months as well. Everything's been given a pass uh, because the majority wants a certain thing. So um, I just I just don't have a lot of confidence anymore. It feels like the, the case law of late has tended to focus more on the limits around free speech than on giving that sort of, um, you know, fulsome, um, support for the for the principle it's how can we restrict it how can we make sure that the the, the place where it's being exercised is appropriate how can you know they, they focus on all of that stuff more now than they do on on giving voice to the idea so yeah and you contrast that uh, line you just shared from an older decision with i, I think it was watcott which said and I, i'm paraphrasing here that you know just because something's true doesn't mean you can say it basically mm -hmm. Well, and I think actually this legislation very clearly incorporated Whatcott uh, to charter proof it in a, in a way. Like if you use the language from the Whatcott decision, that's where you get the detestation and vilification language from. So that's their way of, <clears throat> of trying to ensure that the, that the legislation is charter proof, essentially. So let's turn to the way forward here because I, I try not to depress people too much without offering a bit of hope and it sounds like there might not be reasons to be hopeful except for perhaps hoping that you, you know because it's a minority election uh, minority parliament perhaps we might end up at the polls again before something like this uh, goes into effect but but Sarah I, I know that you have been challenging a, a number of fines uh, main, many under lockdowns and, and also uh, speech restrictions but but beyond this I mean what would your recommendation be on, on how best to to attack this before it gets to that point. I mean, what's the, what do you think is the winning argument to Canadians that are not as tuned in on this, that hear someone say, you know, we're going after hate speech and think, well, yeah, that seems like a good thing. I don't like hateful speech. How do you convince those people that this is about more than just that? Hate is, is an emotion, right? I, I mean, that's how we, how we understand hate. And if you start thinking about regulating people's emotions, um, you're taking away the human aspect of, of humans and, and civilization. So um, I think although, although people say they, they don't like hate speech, um, they, need, they need to understand that hate is on the spectrum of emotions that we all experience. And regardless of, of how uncomfortable that is, human beings are uncomfortable. Uh, we, we are inherently flawed. And people need to, instead of trying to step away from that, 
um, except the fact that there's there's a human nature aspect and nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to be a hateful, terrible person. And so having compassion for when when things that you dislike or dis disagree with come up, I think is a much better way to to think about things than to say, well, we need the government to step in and intervene on on an individual's human nature. What would your message be, Lisa? How, how would you recommend selling this to people that aren't aware of, of just what the stakes are on this? Well, I think people have to be more concerned about how this will be applied than they are concerned about the uh, existence of hate speech. And I mean, there's no question there's stuff out there that nobody wants to hear, that people find offensive, um, disgusting, you know, horrible. Um, like, there's no, there's no limit to that on the internet now when you can see everybody's opinions and, and, and thoughts. But that isn't where this is going to stop. And I think the average person needs to understand that things in our post-truth world, things that we all or many of us consider to be truth, uh, consider to be um, common sense, those are the kinds of things that may end up being targeted. Uh, and if so I think people if they could get their heads around the idea that, that simple concepts and, and ideas that, that are not currently popular, well, let me give you an example, I guess, you know, to say that uh, if, if you wade into the, into the transgender debate at all, in any way, even if you do it compassionately, um, you will find that your comments are immediately construed as hateful. And so if you were to say something like, you know, um, men cannot be women, if you said something like that, you might find yourself being accused of saying something harmful or even hateful. I, you know, I don't know that it's going to rise to that level, but we certainly see a trend to want to shut down anything that doesn't say that doesn't uh, you know, comport with our with our current permissible, very narrow um, uh, thought that that's allowed that's allowed to occur. So um, I just I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it, we could have a cultural pushback. But we need a lot of people to wake up to the fact that this is going to impact them. It's going to impact their children. It's going to impact their future. It's going to impact this country. And until enough people recognize that and say, okay, enough of this stuff, this is all going somewhere very bad that is not at all conducive to the kind of society that Canada is supposed to be, which is fair and just and, you know, compassionate and all those kinds of things. I mean, we don't want to have hate speech here. But this is going to take us down a path that goes far beyond what anybody really imagines. And so I guess I, I, I would hope that people start paying more attention and start uh, speaking up about it. Um, it is possible to change the culture. It is possible to make, have political changes and solutions. But, uh, but it starts with everybody becoming more um, conscious of all of this and speaking up and speaking the truth whenever they can. Uh, if we don't speak it, we're, we are going to be finding ourselves in hushed whispers around our kitchen table saying things that used to be allowed but aren't anymore. If that's the kind of Canada that you want to have, then carry on. But if you don't, you got to speak up now. Speak the truth. Live not by lies. Is, I put that in my Twitter bio because that's, I'm trying to live by that. Um, you know, speak the truth whenever possible. And, uh, and know that things like this are not conducive to that, uh, to that way of, of thinking and um, and, and not conducive to, like this bill, is not conducive to the kind of Canada that allows for us to, uh, to think and speak freely. Sorry, it's not, we're not very eloquent, I'm just, um, I'm just sputtering, but I, I, you know, I just think people need to kind of wake up. 
Well, I think the wake up sums it up perfectly. So very well said, both of you, Sarah and Lisa. Thank you so much. Sarah Miller is a lawyer with JSS Barristers in Calgary, and Lisa Bildy is a lawyer with Libertas Law in London, Ontario. But I know you both have a very national reach for your work, and we are all the better off for it as, as people that value freedom. So uh, Sarah, Lisa, thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. When you look around at the state of free speech or lack thereof in Canada, it's very difficult to be optimistic and cheerful. But I hope we can at the very least arm you with some of the points about this, because I think Lisa touched on it earlier, that we can talk about the law and the law is important because obviously state coercion and state force and state censorship is worse than all the other kinds. But you have to look at what it is that gives governments a mandate to do that. And Justin Trudeau won re-election literally weeks after proposing a law that would allow the government to regulate online speech. He thinks that Canadians like this, and by and large, he may well be right. So yes, we need to push back against the law. There will be legal challenges. I hope to testify before this in Parliament. My colleague Lindsay Shepard testified when the government had its initial consultation on this, and it was a tremendous, tremendous testimony that you should go and look up. She appeared alongside Mark Stein and John Robson as well, who both gave very necessary contributions to this that clearly fell on deaf ears insofar as the Liberals are concerned. But underscoring that mandate is a is the fact that Canadians don't actually respect free speech all that much. And it might be because they don't think the censorship will ever go after them. Maybe it's because they think that this peaceful, harmonious existence that Canadians enjoy is one that requires us to go after so-called hate speech. But whatever it is, they need to understand the stakes. Just look earlier this month, Margaret Atwood, this like lion of left-wing advocacy and literary excellence in Canada, facing the cancel mob because she tweeted a column that says we should be able to use the word woman. (laughs) People like ripping Margaret Atwood's books off their bookshelves because she thinks that woman means something. And this is what we're up against. So it's not going to be an easy battle, but as Lisa, Sarah, and Jonathan, I think would all agree, it is very much a necessary one. So thanks to all of you for tuning into this Andrew Lawton Show deep dive into free speech and Bill C-36. Whatever it comes back as, we know it cannot come back. We will talk to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.